This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, Greg McMichael, we are coming to you from another new venue. Another new venue for us to record behind the Braves, the official podcast of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, beautiful venue we've got here. Intimate, I'd say. It's uh, called Your Office, and I like it. It's very nice. I'm looking I'm looking directly at you got your World Series trophy there in the center. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, some of your hats. I love you got you got the, the Braves hats, the World Series hat. Was that the Greenville Braves hat there? Yep. Durham Bowls in the middle. Rich, the old Richmond Braves over there. In the middle, you've got a, a glove with, is that, what kind of writing is that? Is Japanese. Japanese. What's the story with that? Mizuno. Um, I played with uh, three Japanese pitchers, Kashiwada, uh, Yoshi, and uh, Hideo Nomo. Okay. When I was with the Mets. And so, Yoshi, obviously, being Japan, they're all Japanese guys. I think they were all, maybe, maybe Nomo was um, SSK. But I'm pretty sure they were Mizuno. But anyway, Yoshi uh, was admiring his glove uh, one day, and he got one made for me with my name on it in Japanese. Cool. And gave that to me as a gift. And then, um, yeah, it was interesting. When I was with the Mets, we had got to do a couple things. We were on a Japanese game show. They had this thing called, like, Tic-Tac-Toe, where they put this Tic-Tac-Toe board at home plate, and they had four or five of us who ever wanted to do it. And the game was you had to throw the baseball and knock out the tiles in tic-tac-toe. And if you if you got every every one that you got, you knocked down, you got $1,000. If you got tic-tac-toe, you got like $10,000. If you got knock, if you got knockout, then, you know, it was like $15,000 or $20,000 or something like that. So it's this, it's this national game show that they have. But the thing about it is that you had to – the ball had to hit clearly in the center of the tile. If it hit on the edge at all, it wouldn't break it. Huh. And so you got like three, you know, every time you threw a ball, I think you got like three misses or something like that or two misses. As long as you knocked them out, you get get to keep going. I think I got two two tiles. But nice. Anyway, so we got to do some fun things like that. The Japanese were obviously very excited having three Japanese players on our team. And then Bobby Valentine, who was our manager, had won a championship in Japan. So we were always trying to do stuff with them. But anyway, yeah. those were they were good guys. Got to know them. They were, um, you know, they pitched for two or three years with the Mets, and we had interpreters there, and it was fun getting to know them. But anyway, he he got me that glove. That is cool. I was looking at over under each hat is a glove, and that's the one that doesn't have a hat on it because it shows off your name there right. in, in Japanese. So, and I noticed under the World Series hat there. Uh, in that glove, there's a ball in that glove. Is there any significance, or it's just a just a ball that's in? No, there? I think that was a glove that I actually pitched in. I just 
put some of my game used gloves yeah. up there with a hat. So I think that glove I I used in the World Series it was raw. I was uh, under contract with Rawlings at the time. Okay. And and then the last three years I was under contract with Mizuno. Cool. Okay. And the the last thing, well, there's the big Bobby Cox statue replica statue over there, which mm-hmm. is awesome looking on one end, and on the other end, there's a big giant silver trophy. It's the major league uh, major league team bullpen winner, Atlanta Braves 2000. For those. Sitting at home listening to this, uh, the best way I would describe it, it looks like the Lombardi Trophy, except instead of a football, <laughs> it's got a fire hat with uh, looks like Rolaids Relief uh, mm-hmm. branding on it. There, it's a pretty cool looking trophy too. So everybody in the bullpen got one of those, I think. No, 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 that is the the team award, and you know we had a museum for a long time mm-hmm. uh, at Turner Field, and we don't have a museum anymore. We've done a great job of spreading our memorabilia out around the whole stadium. We have Monument Garden. And the Hank Aaron Terrace, we've got different things. We've got stuff, pictures up on the wall. So we had some things in storage, and and, uh, they were getting ready to take that to storage. And I was on that bullpen in 2000, and I just said, hey, I'd love to display that in my office. They said, sure, it really probably doesn't have any significance for anybody else here in the state, (laughs) in the the office, right? But uh, for me, it does. I'm not sure we – I can't remember what our bullpen rank was in 95 and 96. We had pretty darn good bullpens. But I know in 2000 we actually won the Rural Age Relief Award for a a team. And um, – but I'm not sure where we stacked up on the other ones. And then I think in 93 or 94 I won some monthly – you know, I was a closer mm-hmm. parts of 93, 94, and I was, I won the award for the month, but, but, uh, I think I finished maybe six or something cool. in 94. Very cool. Well, two things. One, we are in, we're taping in Greg's office today because I walked down to the alumni lounge to meet you where we usually tape and there was an entire, and I'm not, we're not going to spoil the show because that <laughs> would probably, well, we'd probably get in trouble. First of all, if we said something, but I showed up and there's like a whole TV production crew and equipment and, st- and stuff everywhere, cameras everywhere. And they're filming for an episode of a, of a TV show down there. And I walked into I heard the alumni lounge and it was labeled green room. And I went, huh? And then I looked in there and they had the chairs, like the directors and the actors chairs that you see on sets with the names on the back of them. And it had the actors' names and then the characters they were playing. And I saw the, I just saw in the center of it the star of the show. And I definitely recognized both him and his character name on there. And uh, I, I can't give it away more because I don't want to get in trouble. But it's going to be cool to see uh, SunTrust Park in this show whenever that episode nice. happens to come out. So we had to change venue. So we're in your office. I thought it might have been TMZ where they were wanting to know where the famous Ricky Mass was filming <laughs> behind the Braves. <laughs> no, they already called up to me out in the battery on the way over here. They need to yeah. find me near near Sport and Social or one of the bars over there. Yeah. You know, that's where they catch up. Or Hagen Dust. That's where they catch up with me. You have to change your route to the stadium every day just to throw them off. I do. Yeah, I come. Some days I go Windy Hill. Some days Circle Seventy Five. Uh, some days I'll go through the Roxy. Yeah. You know, it's it's I it's 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 tough, but I mean that's just that's the life I lead. You know, do we, it. we had to do that in St. Louis because you walk to the stadium from the hotel. Oh, really? And so you you would play these games with the guys who are looking seeking autographs. Mm. You know, and and so you would. You would see them, you'd be walking down, you know, most of the Midwest towns, and I think even out West, it's kind of like on a square grid where, you know, it's like blocks kind of, you know, intersect and you can see down the street over the corner or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you'd see these guys all scrambling through the books. They're looking out to see who's coming and because they, of course, they know you're walking and, and, um, 
and you know they're there, and so you try to play these games, which, you know, it was kind of boring. You'd kind of go the other way, and then they'd be scrambling down the street, and then after the game, it'd be dark, and they're trying to track you down and stuff. It was kind of funny, but. Yeah, sounds like Frogger or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Try not to get hit by a car. And yeah, just, exactly. Just so that those uh, make their make their time a little bit more difficult. Yeah, well, it sounds like a fun <laughs> game to me. A little way to keep the day entertaining That's for right. everybody. Yeah, cheap cheap pleasure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So one, we we had a venue change. We're in your office, and two, uh, today's episode features a very special guest uh, talking about his career, none other than Greg McMichael. Uh, this is something we've alluded to it before when you and I first met last almost a year, basically a year ago now, I think, um, and decided we were going to attempt to do a podcast. Our first trial run or test run was we reserved one of the conference rooms here in the office, set up the microphones, and stood at a, across the table from each other, and we just talked for an hour. And it was mostly about your career, but it was really more of just us kind of getting to know each other and getting comfortable with actually talking to each other. And it's something I've wanted to come back and do, like actually do the form of like the actual episode, the Greg McMichael episode, because it's I was thinking about it and it might have even been with with last week with Bob Horner or maybe it was with Andrew recently. I know you've mentioned a couple of times you've referenced on here on Behind the Braves, like uh, the cartilage issue you had when you were a, a, a still a youngster, really, and had to stop playing sports for a while. And some of the things every now and then you'll you'll reference something in your career, and I'm like, well, I've heard that, I know that, but I would love for the fans to hear the full story of that and mm. your journey from kid to making it to the big leagues. So, and it's kind of cool, actually. I actually, it's kind of cool that it worked out this way because we're sitting in your office and I'm looking at these mementos and stuff from your career, and it's it's kind of appropriate, I think, that we ended up in here today. We didn't plan it. Mm-hmm. We were planning to do this episode with you, but it's kind of. Uh, Appropriate. You got the, t- well, the Tennessee schedule too. That's pretty yeah, cool looking. Yeah, that is. They do a good job on that. Yeah. Well, yeah. one thing you didn't mention is I've got. Uh, yeah, I have a client who put together the 1966 team um, here in my office, and basically it's a framed picture of all the baseball cards with the actual team photo from West Palm Beach in the center, and and actually from the museum they gave me one of the original patches from the from the sleeves. Which oh, that's is an the, original patch, The Screaming huh? Indian, yeah, oh, which my is gosh. really cool. But these are all original baseball cards. They did a really good job, and Rico Cardi's on there, and Joe Torre, and Hank Aaron, Felipe Lou. So I love it because, obviously, that was the first year the team was in Atlanta. That was when I was born. I've got some connections with the alumni who are still alive. And, actually, our trainer, Dave Persley, is in here, and he was the equipment manager and he's dressed all in white that you would think he's like, you know, where they look like they would dress in an insane asylum or something, you know. <laughs> <Not really>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. like, but it's got the old West Palm Beach top. If, you, if uh, any of our, our um, very list, cool. listeners have ever been to West Palm Beach, it had this really interesting awning over the over the stands there, and you can see that in the background. Anyway, that's, that's a cool piece. I love that. They did a great job putting that together. And I look at all the faces of the guys – that are on there, and there's something, you know, it, where's Eddie Matthews or, um, you know, some of these guys that aren't with us, Billy O'Dell, who just passed away, who came to the stadium in a three-piece suit. Him him and Felix Mion are probably the two most – or were the best-dressed alumni that we'd have. They'd show up for Alumni Sunday just decked out in a three-piece suit. And Felix still does that, but Billy did that as well, and I think that's just a sign of the times. But it's pretty That's cool. awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love looking up there and seeing old – pictures and baseball cards i'm kind of a history buff but uh yeah it's very but yeah cool. i i love i love uh having having the stuff and 
seeing the, the guys that I get to interact. I feel like I got a great job just being able to hang out with the alumni and have them see them interact with the fans. It's it's a lot of fun. Very cool. Yeah, and you've got there's autographed baseballs. There's a couple other you know National League and World Series champion hats from '95, and then right here. Next to me, looks like a glove autograph by Chipper, if I'm not mistaken. Is mm -hmm. that who that is? Okay, cool. Yeah, Chipper is with Mizuno, and uh, we used to play. He had a family foundation, and we used to play in a lot of his golf tournaments, and he gave us all gloves one year. That's cool. Did that. The hat, those were actually original hats that were in the clubhouse with us when we won the World Series in 95, and the other one was when we uh, won the National League Championship in 96. Okay. And they still have the tags on them. And I see that, They probably yeah. have a little champagne on them. That's cool. Very yeah. cool. So I, I just actually found those, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring them in. They, they, have, they look like they were brand new. Yeah. I've I've still got my 1995 uh, World Champions Atlanta Braves hat that I think my parents got me for Christmas mm -hmm. that year. And I wore it all the time. Uh, I don't wear it anymore now. It's pretty worn <laughs> in, but I still have it. And I see the, people see wearing the hats and the shirts in the in the plaza for Alumni Sunday out there. I see them wearing it's very cool. wearing the World Series garb. It's yeah, very it's cool. A lot yeah. of fun. Definitely. Good memories. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, let's get into some memories here. Right. I want to know. Let's start from the beginning. Like when I know you come from an athletic family and you got a, a brother that played at Tennessee and all that. When was the first time? Do you remember the first time that you first like? picked up a ball or first got interested in actually playing baseball or sports in general? Yeah, I remember picking daisies in the outfield. <laughs> I was like eight. No, I had I had a brother that was, like you said, a really good athlete. I was the youngest of three, and I was always at the ballpark. My brother played football, basketball, baseball, and back then everything wasn't organized. I would just tag along, and so I'm always making up games and getting in trouble at the ballpark and – so whether it's my dad's coaching, my brother's playing, and I'm just there. And so you can't help but just be creative. And and I can't say I, I, sat, I didn't sit and watch the games. I was just trying to – while I was building mud pies or throwing rocks or running around with the other, you know, the other kids that were there whose brothers were playing. Mm -hmm. But I do remember that I started when I was eight, which, you know, I've been – I've taught for a long time. And nowadays, kids are coming in at four and five, you know, half, the, you know, more than half of when I started, they're already playing ball at three and four years old, t-ball, coach pitch, all that good stuff. We didn't do that back then, but I do remember probably about nine years old when I first started pitching. And it, a lot of it started in the in the backyard with my dad. My dad would want me to be the best pitcher I could be or best hitter or whatever. So he'd have me play catch or he'd hit me ground balls. And I didn't like the ground balls a whole lot. I didn't like getting <laughs> hit on the bad hops. But I do remember pitching and having kind of an affinity for that. But we always had a basketball goal. Basketball was huge. We'd all, all the neighborhood kids would come over. We played basketball all the time. And, of course, my brother's five years older than me. I want to get in their games, and we're playing. And we did that and played basketball more. But baseball was just kind of one of those things that I ended up having to do because I couldn't do anything else. I was diagnosed with a rare cartilage disease at age 13. It was called osteochondritis desiccans. Basically, it means that the, car the articulate cartilage died in the joint. And back then, there was only two cases in the state of Tennessee. At the time, there was a Tennessee football player and myself, and they didn't really know what to do. So think that what's equivalent to microfracture surgery nowadays they just they drill holes to try to revive it mm -hmm. and uh that didn't work i think nowadays they just leave it they don't do anything well developed in my right knee 
I uh, had my first surgery at 13. It didn't work. Then they went back in again. Then they took the cartilage out. Rehab was nowhere near what it is today. They sure. just basically put you behind a curtain and said, do this. And being 13 years old, I uh, you know didn't know what was going on. I, you know, I was a kid that played football, basketball, baseball, ran track. I swam competitively. I played tennis. I did all the punt, pass, and kick, pitch, hit, and run, tri-star basketball, all that kind of stuff, any of the competitions. I, I did whatever. It was just fun to me. Competition was fun. And so I think when that was – the doctor came in and said, okay, we think your career – you know, you're not going to be able to play sports anymore. This is something that's just going to prohibit you from – running, jumping, all that kind of stuff. You know, I was pretty much devastated. When you were 13? I was 13, Jeez. yeah. So eighth grade, 13. And um, so I really struggled with my identity, uh, basically. So rest of eighth grade, didn't do anything, didn't do anything. Ninth grade, comes to 10th grade, and I'd had kind of a rough go at it. And I think I really, you know, started hanging out with the wrong crowd, got involved and. um you know, some bad stuff just at a young age, just because I didn't really know who I was. Everything I thought I was was now gone, you know, being involved in sports. So, but it, but I remember in 10th grade, I just basically told my dad, I said, listen, I'm going to go, I'm going to go try to do something. I said, I'm miserable. I need to go pitch or do whatever. And I thought, well, pitching might be the easiest because I'm not running or jumping. I'm just pitching and my arm felt fine. And so he took me to the doctor. The doctor said, well, you can try it. It's probably going to hurt, but, you know, go ahead. And, and so I said, well, I'm, yeah, I'm going to try it. And I remember going out my sophomore year and actually pitching, and I think I ended up pitching 30 innings or something and did fine. I didn't play anything else, but I pitched. Next year I got a little bit better, went out for football, played quarterback. Was there any pain that first that first year of sophomore year? I'm sure it was pretty awkward. Yeah, I don't remember specifically. But just the but want to be able to do it yeah, didn't matter. I think gotcha. there was a lot of atrophy in my legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there probably was some pain. Um, I don't remember running or anything like, you know, for exercise. I just remember doing it. Um, so I ended up having three surgeries, you know, before I got out of high school. And – my sophomore year I pitched. My junior year got a little bit better. We about won the state championship. My my junior year I pitched really, really well. So when the school started calling, I, I felt, um, you know, that I was ready to go to the next level, end up picking the University of Tennessee. I think I had – I think my high school career, I think I was 30-3 and three with a .9 ERA. So, I mean, I had three or four no-hitters. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I obviously pitched well, but I was in a little bit of a small school, uh, kind of like the Wesleyan – you know, uh, school here over in uh, Norcross. And um, so I went to end up going to Tennessee just because I felt like that was the best program for me personally. Uh, I was from Knoxville. I didn't really want to go there. I wanted to kind of get out of town. But uh, when I went to the other schools to visit, it just was pretty clear to me that, that Tennessee was the best situation. Didn't particularly pitch great. I tell people all the time that, you know, they're talking about how – how much pressure or how hard you get on somebody when they're pitching or they're not performing. And I start laughing. I said, you know, my coach would meet my whole freshman year. My coach at Tennessee would meet me. I wouldn't even get back to the dugout. He'd be dog cussing me <laughs> saying, how in the world did I give you a full scholarship? <laughs> you are the worst pitcher. I can't believe, you know, I mean, he's just, he's just like going on and on because I, I wasn't very good. It was a, it was a big jump for me from a small class, a school, high school 
to Division One, um, pitching against Florida and LSU and Mississippi State. I mean, they they had Rafael Palmero and Will Clark and Bobby Thigpen and I mean they had some great players in the league. Albert Bell and um, back then he was Joey Bell, but so. I had a tough time adjusting that freshman year, so I wasn't really good. But thank God they stuck with me, and they taught me how to go from straight over the top to kind of a low three-quarters. Had a really good pitching coach who ended up um, being a big league pitching coach. So I really struggled transition-wise for the first year, then started coming. I went away with Athletes in Action and toured in the summer. I played in the Alaskan League two years. Went to Europe, did the whole college summer league uh, thing, and really – kind of developed as a pitcher on my own. So you went Alaskan League and also Europe. Yeah, so one wow. year, yeah, one year we went we went to um we went to Alaska both years, but um it was one of those teams. Now I think they just put them in one league. They put the team in one league and you stay there. But back then we traveled. And we traveled all the way to Europe and we went to Alaska. So yeah, it was a that was a lot of miles that summer, but I learned a lot about myself from the standpoint of pitching kind of came into my own, took all the instruction, and it just took a couple years for it to kind of work itself out. By the time my junior year rolled around, we were very fortunate that uh, coach got, coach resigned, coach got fired, and then there was a a guy from the New York Yankees, Mark Connor, came down, he was the big league pitching coach, and he left the Yankees and came back to Knoxville, which I think his wife was from there and his kids were, uh, were born there. And he decided to take over the program. And what was great about that was that here was a guy that just came straight from the big leagues and was now our college coach. And he looked at me and he said, he goes, dude, you got everything it takes to pitch in the big leagues. You just need some fine tuning. And so he had a lot of credibility with me because he just came from the big leagues. And so he helped really kind of put all the pieces for me together and give me confidence and end up getting drafted. I remember specifically – watching Tom, this was at the end of Tommy John's career many people have heard the the you know the surgery to Tommy John surgery but there was the pitcher uh was a great pitcher and you know he was one of those guys that was a fireballer early in his career ends up getting hurt and they named the surgery he was the first one to successfully have the the surgery where the ligament replacement when he came back he was what we call a thumber which which basically he changed speeds and didn't throw very hard but I watched him throw a bullpen one day at the University of Tennessee. Coach had all of us gather around. I watched for an hour and a half. For an hour and a half, he threw mm. fastball, changeups, sinkers. He threw everything, and I was amazed at how he threw. He didn't. Uh, he could dot an eye. He threw it left, right, up, down, anywhere he wanted. Change speed, slider, curveball. I mean, he threw every pitch, put it exactly where he wanted him, and then for him to pitch for an hour and a half. But he was struggling, and he came back. He came down there to see if he could work with Mark before he went back. And then he's, two days later he goes up for a start and throws a complete game. Wow. I mean, it was, it was flat amazing. So getting to do stuff like that was a huge, um, a huge deal for a young man who was trying to figure out who he was as a pitcher. I went on to have had a great year. I was the number one pitcher. I pitched against all the top guys, Ben McDonald for LSU, which you might remember that name. Had some really good pitchers in the league. Ended up getting drafted in the seventh round by Cleveland. And Roy Clark, our longtime scout here with the Braves, is the one that was the kind of the area scout for us. And uh, Mark told him, you know, you need to take this guy in the top, you know, and Mark told me six to eight, six to eight rounds, 
and Roy ended up drafting me with the Indians. I went all the way through their organization. I think because of Mark's teaching, I really was prepared for the minor leagues. I could change speeds. I had a sinker, and I just breezed through rookie ball, A ball, double A, got all the way to triple A um, within about two years with the Indians, and I was just one step away and ended up hurting my knee again. And that's when um, I went back down, and Dom Cheedy, who is now our minor league director, was our um, roving pitching coach for the Indians in the minor leagues. And I worked with Dom all during instructional league to try to come back from that surgery. And I guess he and Dan O'Dowd didn't think I was going to come back because I um, I was just I, – they knew my history, and they Dom sat me down during spring training – this was in 1991, and he basically said, you know, we think you should retire. You've got a, you know, you've had a tough go of it, and we don't think you're going to make it back. And and I just looked him in the eye, and I said, Dom, I appreciate your concern. And, you know, Dom had worked hard with me, you know, to try to help me come back. And, and I said, I appreciate it. I just uh, I feel like that guy will let me know when it's time for me to hang it up. I just I want to keep pursuing this, and I appreciate all the help, you know, that you've given me. And so I went on my way, and when I got back to Knoxville, that was in Arizona, um, I got back to Knoxville. I called up our bird dog scout that was in the area, and I his name was Rance. Um, I think his name was Rance Plus, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and I said, hey, uh, have you seen Roy? Um, because I just got released. I, I think you know I'd like to see you know what might be available for me to pitch. And he said, well, you know he's with the Braves now, and I'd be happy to call him. And so he called him, and Roy said, yeah. I want to see a pitch, and I drove up to Kingsport Minor League Ballpark, took my high school catcher, threw for him. He goes, well, why did they release you? You look you look fine to me. And I said, well, they just didn't think I was going to make it back. And he said, well, I think you look fine. He got me signed in three days with the Braves, and I went down to um, to extended spring. So, okay, so the time frame there of you being released from the Indians to now you're signed with the Braves, if, I'm, if I heard that correctly, that's we're talking like a matter of – what, weeks, days, like apart, or was it there was three some days? Time? About three days. Well, by the time I got released from the Indians, and by the time I contacted them, it probably been a week had gone by. I went to a Tennessee baseball game and saw some of the scouts and was looking for Roy and just talking to them to see who might, you know, who might give me a look. I'm just surprised that the the Indians they saw you pitch and just, I mean, you the Braves apparently Roy thought you, were, you saw, watched you pitch and thought you were fine. The Indians just were just just had just decided that you weren't you weren't going to make it back to where you were. Well, it becomes a. I mean, I don't know if that was completely the truth. You never know. That could right. be. There's always that. There's a question mark in somebody's head, but then there's also all this new talent coming up. Because mm-hmm. remember, there's a draft every year. Right. There's guys behind you, and when you stumble and falter, somebody's got to make a decision on whether or not you're still as good. Because now you're behind. You know, you were ahead, and then all of a sudden you stumble and you get surgery, and now you start back to make it back, and now you're followed by the people who were behind you. And there's only so many and spots. There's only to so go many around. spots. I and I was in AAA. I got you. But I'd been one of their top prospects. I mean, it was me, Jeff Shaw, and Kevin Beers, and we were all right there, ready for the big leagues. And then all of a sudden, they're still there, but you get dropped back down, and now you know you go back to Double A, and you're trying to make it back. And then there's this new crop of guys coming up, Charles Nagy, and um, you know, and so you just kind of you're in that put in that situation that every organization faces. They got to make tough decisions on, okay, this guy has a history. He was great, you know, he wasn't hurt. Now all of a sudden he's hurt. 
what does this mean? Do we want to keep another slot, keep a young guy down when they can bring him back up? So hmm. it's just yeah. your basic minor league politics, but it's nothing it, – it's just the way the way it is. I would think that having gone through the whole thing as a younger, younger man or still a boy, really, if you're talking about a 13-year-old, of having a doctor tell you that you're not going to make it back and all that, if you've gone through that as a younger person and you ultimately not only made it back, but now you got a scholarship and got drafted and signed for, to play professionally – that somebody telling you when you know you're <laughs> fine, uh, when you feel fine, that somebody telling you, uh, you know, we don't think you're going to make it back, that had to be just like, mm, it wouldn't even be a second thought, I would think, for you. Like, I don't, oh, I'm going to make it back. Yeah, I have made it back. I don't remember that impacting me at even all. Even the slightest no, little I, bit, right? I, I, yeah. I wasn't even thinking that, you know, gosh, why is this guy saying this to me? Right. No, I mean, I, I dealt with way more than that. Right. Obviously, it's a setback. Sure. And and it makes you question, have I lost it or what's going on? And I wasn't fully recovered. I just had knee surgery. You know, I was still still trying to bounce back. The interesting thing is it did take me probably a half a season to fully recover. Now, my recoveries are slower just because I've now had nine surgeries. So I, I can tell you from somebody who hasn't had surgery for somebody that has, it does make an impact, even though I was only 24 at the time. 23 24 years old because of my history you know it did not did not uh you know it didn't didn't allow me to recover as quick and at a, as a 23 or 24 year old you've had at that point four five that was my fourth four surgery, surgery. Okay. yeah that was going to be my that was end up being my fourth surgery so but I did end up did sign with the Braves and they did send me um end up getting to go to Durham playing Durham which was interesting that was kind of the league I started in as an Indian I was in Kinston and now I'm back in Durham of course it's kind of weird um, and I'm trying to fit in a new organization new team and I'm going out there and I'm just I'm not pitching very well and uh, the next thing you know I've got a five ERA my knees hurting I'm newly married and it's the all-star break and I'm thinking what in the world am I doing uh, there's no I've lost it. It's over. And uh, my wife and I, Jennifer, we um, start talking about finishing college. She was she had already finished college, or she was in college, I think, and she was trying to finish up. And so I'm thinking about I'm trying to I probably need to do that as well. So I make the plan to go in to talk to and my manager was Grady Little. Everybody remembers Grady from mm -hmm. um, the Dodgers and the Austin. Red Sox yeah. with with. Uh, Pedro Martinez, famous um, uh, playoff games. Mm -hmm. But Grady was our manager, and that team was a phenomenal team. You know, look up at the, the Durham Bulls had in my office that you referenced, and that team we had 19 guys make it to the big leagues. That's incredible. So Javi Lopez and Eddie Perez and Tony Tarasco, Mike Kelly. Single A team or advanced A? No, it was, it was high A, high Carol a yeah. yeah, Carolina League. Which That's would, incredible. 19 guys yeah. on a high A team that eventually right. made the big leagues. I mean, if you really sit there and think about it, and if you're somebody that follows minor league ball, or have gone to minor league games. I'm thinking back to the minor league games that I've been to, which admittedly I haven't been to a lot. I've been to a few growing mm -hmm. up. And in each of those games I went to, I maybe saw both teams combined, one or two guys mm -hmm. that eventually made it to the big yeah. leagues. And it could be more than that, but it wouldn't be much more yeah. than that. So for 19 guys off of one single team, is that is just – that's unbelievable. Mm. Well, all of them weren't established major league players, but they all there was a, a bunch that got cups of coffee. Is what we would term that yeah, just they to were make September it, coffee. But yeah. you think about Pedro Borbone on our World Series team, mm -hmm. Mike Kelly World Series team, Javi Lopez World Series team. 
you know, Eddie Perez, I mean, just Tony Tarasco, all those guys, I mean, that those were huge and, and big contributors. Myself um, on at the big league level, so that is very rare. But we had just a great team there, and so that's the team that I was on. And so I'm going in, and I'm I'm going to tell – tell Grady that I'm going to hang it up. Jennifer and I talked about that this is pretty much the best course of action for us. I wasn't getting any better. My knee was still hurting pretty badly. And um, so as I'm walking in, Roy shows up, Roy Clark. And um, if you've ever been to the old Durham Stadium, you know, it's just like you're walking underneath where all the, the old beer and the hot dogs are, and you're walking underneath, and it's an old stadium. And he's standing there, he goes, hey, what's going on? I go, oh. I said, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, I came to see you. I said, really? I said, um, I haven't seen you in a long time. He goes, yeah, I want to come check up on you. And I said, well, Roy, it's not going very well. I think I'm going to I'm gonna retire today. And he goes, really? He goes, no. He goes, I don't. He said, don't do that. He says, you'll regret that the rest of your life. He goes, stick it out. Um, just uh, hang in there. And, and I said, well, you know, my knee is really has not recovered. It has not bounced back. I'm really struggling. I said, I can't even, it's hard to get out of bed. And he just really pleaded with me just to stick it out and to finish the season and then, you know, let things happen. He just didn't really did not want me to quit. And I just was kind of struck by that, that here, you know, on the one hand, you know, a few months earlier, somebody was telling me to to give it up. <laughs> right. And then here is my scout here just pleading with me not to give, uh, give it up. And I just thought, wow, that is really – it was just kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and and so I had to really think about that. And so as I went home, and I just said, "Well, okay, I'm not going to make a decision today. I'll go home, talk with Jennifer. We're going to pray about it because I really feel like that something's got to change." And um, and the biggest thing was that I just knew that I, the pain that I was experiencing on my push off leg was going to have to subside, or else. And kind of a backstory is I ended up getting some tendonitis because of I was overcompensating for my lower half and. And so I was even put on the DL because I couldn't, you know, when you get tendonitis, it's like a needle shooting in your tendon Mm -hmm. and you can't pitch. So I was put on the DL, 5 ERA, it's the all-star break. I mean, everything was going bad. So I I finally, um, I I end up, uh, we prayed about it, didn't feel like that, just thought that we just need to be a little bit more patient. And so I end up uh, come off the DL and there's about two months of the season left over. We're in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I'm pitching. I'm in relief because I'd lost my starting job. And here I was. And remember, I was a Triple A pitcher now back in A ball. So I was a veteran guy. These were all a bunch of young guys. So a lot of times you're going to get, you're not going to get a whole lot of, I don't know, just the way you're viewed is that you know. Remember, like I said, there's all these young people coming up, and if you're going backwards, that's not mm-hmm. a good sign, right? <laughs> so, so I'm I'm pitching, and it was customary that one of your pitchers who was starting the next night would be in the stands charting and shooting the radar gun so that in recording all your pitches. Mm-hmm. So after the game, um, we're walking to the bus, and one of my teammates came up. He said, hey, he said, Greg, uh, there, was a, um, there was a scout up there that said, if you had a changeup, you'd be in the big leagues. And I went, Ugh. I said, you know what? They're always saying something that you don't have. You right. Know? And then, of course, you know, as a as a as a young guy trying to make it and trying to figure out whatever you need to do to get better. The next day, I go to the bowl. It might have even been that night. I was just thinking about, you know, change up, change up. What? I've got a change up. But how come I've been throwing my change up? And so the next day, I'm like, well, I guess I better go work on my change up, right? Right. So I go the next day, and and 
everybody throws out on the field before BP and and uh, you have your throwing partner and my buddy was uh, Nate Minchie who ended up having a great career in Japan and played a little bit uh, got a cup of coffee here with Boston but ended up going to Japan and now he's a scout with with uh, with, uh, with the Tokyo Giants oh wow and it's been a long time he's here in the states but uh, anyway he was my throwing partner and we're 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 throwing and and I said hey Nate I'm gonna work on my change up. And so I start throwing change up, and he looks at me and goes, what are you doing? And I said, because, you know, we'd thrown together all year, and now it's, and now it's um, you know, end of July, middle of July or whatever. And he goes, I said, well, I'm just throwing my change up. He goes, where did you get that? And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, your change up, I've never seen that before. What are you doing to it? And I said, I don't know, I'm just, just I'd learned it in college, but just didn't, you know, really worked on it very much. He goes, well, keep throwing that. That's pretty good. So I threw it, and. And it's just going, boom, you know, just down to the right, down to the right. And uh, I said, huh, I wonder if it'll go the other way. And then, boom, down to the left. And so and so I just started manipulating it and just playing around. And I go to throw a bullpen, and Javi's over there catching me. And I said, Javi, I want to I work on my changeup. And so I threw him some changeup. He goes, uh, what is that? And I go, it's my changeup. And he goes, where would you get that from? I haven't seen that from you. And I go, I don't know, I just started working on it. He goes, well, keep throwing it. And so I threw it some more and threw it some more. And then at the end, we talked a little bit about it. And I talked to my pitching coach. And and uh, I said, I, I think that's a pretty good pitch. They go, yeah, we do too. We think you should throw that more. And I said, well, let's just throw it and keep throwing it and see what happens. And so I go I, – one of our guys, David Need, ends up getting called up to double-A, who was actually the first pick in the – expansion draft in, in 1993. I knew I remembered Rockies. that name somewhere. Yeah. That's what it's from. Okay. Yeah, so we had yep. several, Vinny Castilla mm-hmm. and David Need. So David gets called up, and I take his spot in the rotation. So I'm before the game, I'm warming up, and I said, Javi, let's just throw change-ups. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, I just want to throw change-ups. I want to see how many I can throw before they hit it. And uh, he said, okay, that's easy. So I start throwing change-ups, and literally from – Beginning of August, I think until the end of no, I say the middle of July till the end of August so it was about six weeks. I threw nothing but change ups, literally nothing but change-ups. probably like maybe eighty percent change ups. Okay, so yeah, pretty much nothing but change ups. Yeah, I yeah. struck out two an inning, did not give up one run. So mm. I had a pretty good you know six I'd say, weeks. I'd say so, and uh, won most of those ball games. So I got to start. Those last four to six weeks, I think it was four to six weeks at least, I know, and um, did really, really well. So at the end of the season, Grady says, uh, well, you know what? I appreciate all your hard work. You did a pretty good year. But I'd had a terrible first half, and I had a great second half. So it looked like an average year. Fortunately for me, Chuck Lamar came in and was the head of the minor leagues didn't and took over as the Braves minor league director. Didn't release anybody because typically you release a bunch of guys sure. in the off season. Again, so there's he, only so many spots. Right? That's right. right. He brings everybody to camp, and we um, we kind of battle it out for the next position. So really, if you're thinking about it, there's three A ball teams, mm-hmm. and then it all comes into one double A team. So now you've got 30 pitchers trying to trying to make 10 spots. Right. So it becomes really – it's the, truly the upside-down funnel, as a lot of people will say in the minor league system. It really becomes – double-A is really the, 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 the turning point where a lot of people kind of go away. 
And so I'm battling it out like most people here. I'm a veteran, minorly guy, older guy. I'm about 24, 25, 25 now. Most people say if you're not in the big leagues by 26, then, you know, you probably never will be. So I'm I'm right on the cusp of that. And the knock on me was that I had a great changeup, but I didn't throw very hard. And so Chuck came down the last week, I hadn't given up a run, came down to three of us. And come to find out, my pitching coach told me that I was on everybody's release list except for his to start spring training because all the coaches make up a list, and they put it on a big board. And I was on the release list of everybody's except for his, and by the end of spring training, I was off of everybody's. And it came down to three of us. And Chuck said, I'm going to go watch all three of them pitch. And whoever pitches the best, I'm going to keep them on the double A. So I was literally trying to make the 10th or 11th spot. I can't remember if they took 10 or 11. So I um, I ended up pitching that day, doing well, and I went from throwing 84 miles an hour to 88 miles an hour. And so they ended up keeping me and got and sent one guy down and released the other guy. I made the team, and I ended up being the closer for the double-A team. Well, that double-A team was basically the A-ball team now moved up to Greenville, and we set a record and won the league and set a record for like 103 ball game, 103 wins or something in the yeah. in the league and um, had a great, great, you know, same same type of guys. Well, after about a month on that team being the closer, I was still striking out two guys in an inning. I was using all change-ups. Well, they moved me up to, to Richmond. And how was your knee pain during this time? I had no more knee pain. It I was just subsided like you yeah. hoped it would. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it went away and and um, and I tell – tell people all the time that you know god took the pain away but he gave me a change up right so that's a heck of a trade right there you talk <laughs> that, about wins right. and losses. that's a that's a winning trade right there. that's right that's right so i was real excited i was i was healthy i was pitching well ended up getting called back up to triple a finished out the season did starting and relieving up in richmond got some great experience and the braves ended up sending me to puerto rico and in puerto rico was a starter uh, led the league in uh, wins and strikeouts, made the all-star team down there. And, and what's significant about Puerto Rico is that you're actually playing against – I pitched against Sandy Alomar Jr. I pitched against Juan Gonzalez, Carlos Baerga. Um So they they have – the back then, some of the major league players would come back and play in the winter because they lived there. So Puerto Rico had a pretty good contingency. Sandy Alomar Jr., um, so they had some good players down there. And so I got to pitch against them, which was good for a young guy, build confidence, see how your stuff, you know, you react to the, the, those type of hitters react to your stuff. While I'm down there, the Braves end up inviting me to spring training as a non-roster invitee, which was huge again, because they didn't have to. So I ended up getting to go to West Palm beach. And of course, like you and myself in 91, 92, you know, we were watching, you know, Last to first, Sid slides, and then all of a sudden I'm walking in the locker room with these guys, and and I'm in just as much awe as anybody would be, and trying to figure out why I'm here and how in the world am I going to perform at this level, and end up going through spring training and having a pretty good time. Yeah, that I look back at that, and I know Ted and the TBS brand thing was it was branding the Braves as America's team, and I don't know when he actually started that, but I assume it was. <laughs> long before mm-hmm. the the 91 worst to first season but to me and again I was a kid at the time but looking back on it I felt like those 91 and 92 teams that really felt there was this feeling of this they kind of were America's team because they'd been the Braves for the most part outside of say 82 maybe 83 seasons somewhere in there 
for the most part, they've been pretty bad for the better part of a couple decades, save for a few seasons here and there. And then suddenly, I, I, and again, I again, I was in the southeast, growing up in the southeast, was traveling all over the country, but mostly in the southeast. So it could have been maybe it was this, the South's team, but it felt like, <laughs> as a fan and as a kid, it felt like they were America's team, and that's and it was a big deal. And those guys, to me as a kid, were. I mean, whether it was Lemmer or Blouser, of course you had Smoltz and Glav and Justice, but the, all of them equally to me were rock stars. Raphael Belliard was like a rock star to me. <laughs> I mean, all of these guys yeah. were because they were just they were kind of capturing the imagination of baseball fans, at least all over the South, if nothing else. Definitely, mm -hmm. which is, and we still talk about it now, that's one thing we have that's kind of, as a franchise, that's kind of special from other franchises in that we have this huge geographical footprint of the country that we count as our fan base with multiple states. And um, and I think that's a source of pride. And at that time, it felt like it was very prideful. It's like, this is our team. And I still have a – I went to a game probably 2005, 2006 at Turner mm -hmm. Field just as a fan. And you know how they would have those – like people would set up those like little tents and they'd sell kind of knockoff memorabilia, you'd say, or like cheap memorabilia or old memorabilia like yeah. on the sidewalk. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. And I never really – I mean, every now and then I'd just see something that took my fancy. But one time I was walking by one of those stands and I saw an old license plate uh, and it just said – I think it was from like 92 and it just said Atlanta Braves, like a novelty license plate. It said Atlanta, Atlanta Braves Team of the South. Mm. And I bought that and I still have that hanging up. I just nice. love that thing because it reminds – it's from that time. It reminds me of that time and it reminds me what it felt like at that time. Mm. Those teams were – everybody that was on those teams were rock stars. So fast forward to 93, I remember watching – I think I was watching when you made your, your debut. Or it was pretty early on because I remember – oh, who's this new guy? Greg yeah. McMichael. I remember that like it was the new kid on the block, was mm -hmm. the, the new guy. So well, I was the only rookie on the team. Yeah, so there you so go. I so could, yeah, I was against the Cubs there in probably the first month of the season, but it okay. was probably like at the end of the month. Yeah. So I didn't do anything. I mean, these guys were – you know, you had Maddox going and then Glavin and then Smoltz and then Avery. I mean, there wasn't nobody else pitching. Yeah. They were going seven, eight, nine innings a night. Stanton was the closer. Right. And then you had Pedrosian, Cy Young Award winner, Jay Howell, three-time All-Star. You had Kent Merker. Um, and, uh, I mean, you see you had some really good – Marvin Freeman was on that team. I mean, these guys had just been in the World Series the last two years. It really hadn't changed. There was only one or two spots open in the bullpen – and I remember specifically going through spring training and Bobby putting me in because early on, I think there's times where the starters wouldn't go very far. They'd go four innings. And I'd have to go to every road trip. And I was always the backup role, right? And so one time, I think the first time I ever got in was in Port St. Lucie. And, and Steve Avery came out an inning early. And then Bobby puts me in there. And Leo, they put me in there, and I ended up having to face Howard Johnson and um, Bobby Bonilla and uh, Santana. I can't remember his first name. Longtime player for the Mets and the Yankees, I think. And these were all veteran big league guys that that I uh, I think I struck out two out of three of them. And and I remember coming in, and Bobby just kind of looked at me like, "Hey, good job." And then the next time I got in was um, the Yankees. And my first guy up was Don Mattingly. And then I struck out Don Mattingly, and then I had to face Wade Boggs. And Wade Boggs hit – no, I'm sorry, I think Wade Boggs, um, I struck out. Then Mattingly hits a dribbler 
to um, first base that I kind of pick up and toss. And then, you know, it was just kind of one of these things like, did I just, did I just pitch the weight box? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, was that, was that Donnie baseball that just, I think he looked like him, but I've never seen him from this perspective. So I think that might have been him. Um, and so I just remember coming off the mound and Bobby like, Wow, hey, that's a pretty good job. Good job, you know, mm-hmm. and and just kind of looking at me like, all right, who is this kid, and <laughs> right. why why is he nobody hitting his? You know, I know he's throwing them changeups, but I think I was really unique in the fact that I was throwing a different pitch, and and then uh, just getting the opportunity. You know, Bobby kept putting me out there, and I think that then at that point they just they made it a point to keep putting me out there to see, and I went whole spring training and give up a run until the very last game against, you know, you'd play multiple, you'd play the same team multiple times, but I played the Yankees again. I think I'd give up a run literally in the last day at West Palm Beach. So um, they bring us all to Fulton County Stadium, and they're basically going to tell us, and I remember TP and Sid saying, hey, I think you're going to make the team. And I'm thinking in my mind, I just, there's no, I just could not comprehend that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was having a great time, don't, you know, um, I'm not uh, saying I wasn't. I was, but just the f- letting myself go there. There's no way I, I didn't believe that I should have been there, and I didn't didn't have the sense that that confidence that you would have like the next year, or the next year where I felt like that I belonged here. You know, I'd done I I I had the confidence to know that I could pitch and be successful. none of it was there and you can understand come where I'm from all those things go through your mind of being released or told that you can't play or that you're not healthy or feeling inadequate or you're not stuff's not good enough and you know you're just all that stuff plays into it so you really kind of protect yourself a little bit Mm -hmm. and you don't want to let yourself start to think that you can do this all I knew is I was going out there and I said, okay, this is what I got. This is my pitch. I'm going to throw it and see if you can hit it. And so I try to keep it really simple because when I started to try to do too much and think too much about it, um, it you know, it, it can spiral down on you quickly. And I remember um, going to being in the clubhouse at Fulton County Stadium, Bobby calling us all. He, he called me, Steve Bedrosian, and Jay Hallen to the office. And basically, there was there was five people vying for three spots, and it was Mark Wollers, and you know who was the up and coming prospect through 100 miles an hour. Mark Davis, former Cy Young Award winner. Steve Adrosian, former Cy Young Award winner. Jay Hal, two-time World Series champ and three-time All-Star closer for the Dodgers and the A's. You know, and then there's me. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, you know, I didn't really think that. Um, you know, I was going to be the one that was picked, but they end up calling us in, and Bobby says, you guys made the team, and they released Mark um, Davis, and they sent Mark Wollers down. So I ended up being the only rookie on the team that year, and it was a magical year. I ended up being runner-up rookie of the year and, and uh, got to end up being the closer by July. Started out as the 11th pitcher and didn't pitch for the first three weeks, but I enjoyed some great baseball. I mean, <laughs> opening day was Maddox, one-hit shutout in an hour 45 minutes in, in Wrigley in the freezing cold and they made me sit out in the bullpen by myself <laughs> so <laughs> that was great and then uh i mean going to places like la dodger stadium and and going to uh new york and and all these places it was it was flat out amazing didn't love philadelphia that much you know vet stadium that wasn't uh right. that wasn't a highlight but chicago and and new york and those places were but you had to wait th- what three weeks about to it, make it your seemed debut? like it was three weeks until finally avery got knocked out in like the fourth or fifth inning against the cubs and i come in and 
uh, my first pitch, my first hit hitter was um, uh, Candy Maldonado. Wow. Okay. So I faced Candy Maldonado, struck him out. I faced Ray Sanchez, struck him out, and then Mark Grace flew out the center, and um, and so I got to face. I mean, I faced the heart of their order to for, to start, and um, and we uh, it was good. I mean, that was that was my debut, and there there really were no bad hitters. In the league, I mean, I was facing Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and all those guys. So, I mean, Larry Walker. So, I mean, every team had guys that you did well against. But I just remember, you know, think, well, okay, here's Bonds. I guess I'm, I don't know how I'm going to pitch him. I'll see if he can hit the changeup, you know. But it, it was it was pretty fun because I, I guess I looked at it like, well, I don't know why I'm here anyway. So, might as well just have fun with it. Yeah. And I, I do specifically remember – after probably about two months in the big leagues, after I'd been pitching, I was now the closer, and which was very surreal. I'm facing Larry Walker. We're in Montreal. He was a great hitter. We're on turf. It's a crazy place to place to pitch. Hitters Park. Marquise was on that team actually. Grissom. So I get to three zero on Larry Walker, and so all these. These thoughts come in. I'm thinking, oh gosh, I can't blow this save. Right. You know, this guy's a great hitter, and I just I had to really step off the mound. I remember the first time dealing with not only I guess the fear of success, but the fear of failure, which you I went through both in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Once I got real close to the big leagues with the Indians, I struggled with the fear of success. And then, you know, and then early on, you're always, you're always, I think, struggling to some degree with the fear of failure. But at that point, I remember thinking, okay, now I'm a big leaguer. Now I'm, now I'm the closer. People are dependent on me. I can't blow this. And I was, you know, so that whole fear of failure thing. So I really had to step off the mound and start coaching myself. And I think I said, okay, Greg, who are you? Uh, What are you doing here? How, how, you know, what is it that makes you good? You know, you can only do your best. You've only got one pitch, so you better just throw it. And I remember just having to kind of talk to myself and and um, and really just pray and say, okay, when you start trying to do too much, you don't do it. You know, you, you can't be something that you're not. So I just in that really short period of time, I remember just kind of giving myself a little coaching tip. And then I ended up throwing three change-ups in a row and struck him out. So uh, th- I wish it happened always like that, but it <laughs> didn't. But I remember that being a significant time for me as a young pitcher, just having to go through the process to understand that you, no matter where you are in life, you can only do what you're capable of doing, and that when you put these external pressures on yourself to try to do more, you end up not being as good as you can be. And I just remember that being a real powerful time for me, and um, you know, and, and and helping me get over some of the early hurdles. Yeah, I think you answered my next question, which was going to be when you went from, okay, you're pitching and when somebody gets knocked out early or you're kind of the last guy in the bullpen, if you will, to all of a sudden you're the closer. I, that was my next question was what was that? What was the difference mentally in coming out there for the first time as a closer? But I think you just answered that and answered it quite well and how it's just I guess that what really makes the difference of whether or not you can do it is how you handle that extra added pressure or manage to not put that extra added pressure on you and just to do what it is that – you know you can do. Um, if you look back at your entire big league career, I would. I one thing I would want to ask you is: Is there one performance or one moment that sticks out to you as as 
I know that's a, that's that's a broad question. Like it sticks out to you the most if you just had to point to one that like okay that was my proudest moment on the mound because I mean I know you pitched in a ton of different situations, but is there one moment or game or period of time that you look back on that you're like that was that was really that was my favorite or that sticks yeah. out to me the most? There were a couple. Probably the most significant one was when we were in Cincinnati in nineteen ninety five, and we were the it was the first game we get to Cincinnati we just barely squeaked by the Colorado Rockies so now we're playing the Reds for the national championship and Mark comes out to save the game in the ninth inning and he gets I think it's a one-run ball game if I'm not mistaken and he gets the first uh I think he gets one out but now there's first and second and um Reggie Sanders is up Bobby pulls him, which which really because I think he knew he really needed a ground ball. He brings me in, first and second one out, and uh, I think I threw a couple pitches. I end up getting Reggie to hit a ground ball, two or three hopper to Raphael, and we turn double play. And I get the save. We go on to sweep them, and uh, next thing you know, we're in you know, now we're in the World Series. That was probably the biggest moment that I had where. I was called on into a tight situation, and you know, here we are. Mark, you know, was, was our closer, and then, but Bobby, um, you know, brings me in, and and that was a big, that was a big spot. So that was a highlight. There were there were other times like that where, um, you know, I remember I had at one point I had 15 straight saves, uh, my rookie year, and um, and I think the more that kind of stuff happens, you know, the more pressure you put on yourself, but. The one in Cincinnati was probably definitely one of the ones that, that stand out. If any of you have not listened to an episode Greg and I did a few months ago now where we each kind of went through our top five mm. Braves moments, uh, I believe one of your top five was great. It was um, after the, uh, the the World Series win in 95. Mm. I just want to bring it full circle a little bit yeah. here because you referenced it earlier. Uh, one of the folks that was responsible for, and I don't mean this in a malicious way, it's just the way it went down. Mm -hmm. One of the people that released you from the Indians, you then beat the Indians in the World Series in 95, and this one of those people kind of came back and I guess said good for you, essentially, right? Is that kind of how that went? Yeah, well, obviously the the head of the minor leagues at the time was Dan O'Dowd, and um, he's the one ultimately that, that released me. I think Dom's the one that actually did it, but, but – uh, so here, this was back in 1991, and then fast forward four years, and I'm in the clubhouse popping champagne, and, and I just tell a story where I end up in front of the doors to the locker room that lead out into the field, and for some reason, I'm sitting there by myself, and all the doors open, and uh, all of a sudden, the guy walks in, and the first person he sees is me, and, and it's the guy who released me, Dan, and he looks at me and he goes, oh, hey, Greg, congratulations. And he shakes my hand and he walks away. And it was just kind of one of those, like you said, full circle, but that obviously was a big moment. And I, I don't view that in a negative way. I don't view those guys negatively. Uh, Dom, I matter of fact, I just saw Dom. Uh, we, we had the draft and he was in town, and I went over to the um, – to the hotel to say hi to him and talk a little bit. And, and he saw me years later in New York and said, you're not mad at me, are you? And I go, no, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, right. that happens all the time. And that was the joke they used to always say, if you haven't been released or traded, you're probably not getting to the big leagues. For me, I wasn't a number one pick. I was a seventh round pick. 
And so that that's significant from the standpoint that once you get past the third round, you're pretty much a crapshoot on whether or not you're going to make it to the big leagues or not. They don't they're not going to owe you anything. They don't have so much invested in you that they're going to keep you around. Mm-hmm. So for being a seventh round draft pick, it was not not unusual for the Indians to just say, well, you know, you probably need to hang it up. You're you're struggling, and you know you you got bad knees and all that. That's the, the pretty logical. And if you ask any guy in the front office, they'll tell you they make those decisions every day on who they got to keep and all that. So it wasn't a big deal or not. But for me, it was a huge turning point because I had to not only it, it created a gut check for me, but I also had to kind of you know like I said you, you know you have those moments in your life defining moments where you have to decide who you are, what you're going to do. And, and how you're going to take and build upon this very difficult situation. And I call it a gut check because you have to really determine, you know, what what are your goals? What are you trying to do? You know, do you have what it takes to make this next step in your life and determination and perseverance and all those qualities that make you a leader, that make you uh, create, create substance in your life that are going to help you attain a goal you know, a very big goal. And if you don't go through those things, you're never going to be what you could be. Mm-hmm. I've never met a person yet that, that hasn't been, hasn't gone through tough times. that has been really successful. Right. I mean, winning the lottery it does not make you successful. You may have been lucky enough to, to throw some numbers out there, but that doesn't mean you're a successful person, but a person who's been successful in business or in baseball or in in life or, you know, family, it doesn't come without heartache and it doesn't come without challenges. And because you've got to, you've got to develop qualities that only come through pain. And so I I just look at that as that, that was just a a time where most guys had developed that way. Because even if you do get to the big leagues without any challenges, when you get to the big leagues, you're going to have challenges. Right. <laughs> so you can't be successful. And just because you get to the big leagues doesn't make you successful. Right. Right. And um, some people, very few people might be lucky enough just to happen to be on a team that ends up winning the World Series. But to, but to be on a team that's su- successful year in and year out, for, we had 14 straight championships and a World Series. When you do that, that didn't come without serious challenges. Sure. And, and serious things. So I, I just look at that as a blessing for me in my life that I was able to go through that. And those people allowed that to happen, you know. And um, and so I look at that as a very positive thing because that was what was best for me. I think I, I believe that's something you can apply to anybody in, in life. For me, just and I'm certainly not a professional athlete or anything close to that, but even in my career and in my personal life, my greatest successes or achievements, if you will, have all come in the wake or as a result of a failure, mostly on my part, something I was trying or something I was going for and maybe even had it for a little bit, but ultimately it crashed and burned. But the the fallout from that and the things I learned from that are what have led me to where I'm at now. And I never could have foreseen my path in my professional life, personal life, any of it. But because of the mistakes of trying things along the way, the mistakes I made, those have ultimately turned turned me into the person I am and, and given me the career that I have now. And I feel like the way you described it so much more eloquently than I just did, but I just feel like that's a great way of looking at both your career and your personal life of taking those those mistakes and failures, if you want to call them that, as an opportunity to better yourself. Very true.
Well, Greg, that this has been awesome. It's been really cool. I mean, I've I've heard again. I heard a lot of this a year ago, but I didn't really know you then that well. And mm-hmm. so now I do, and to hear it again now, I think it means that much more to me. I hope it means that much more to the folks listening out there. It's quite a story. Uh, the things that you, the obstacles and challenges you overcame to make it to where you did and where you are today, and I, uh, I hope everybody out there. I know they. I'm sure they enjoyed it. It's been great. I've been. Re- the, we had a lot of positive reviews this week. I looked at. Uh, right people enjoying hearing hearing from you and hearing from our guests and, and all that good stuff so keep it up keep sharing behind the braves keep rating reviewing subscribing uh check us out on youtube i think you were telling me our, our sit down with eric young had a has a bunch of views already and it's a good mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great great conversation with him just like the one you and i just had so keep checking us out keep sharing um wherever you want to on all the socials your twitter uh instagram I remember I heard, I heard a guy, this is like 10 years ago, it, it was I was listening on satellite radio, I think, to the Braves game, and on satellite they just choose one of the broadcasts, obviously, which one of the team. So it wasn't the Braves broadcast, it was the away teams, I don't know who it was. But there was an older announcer on there, and he was reading the promo <laughs> for for where to follow them on social stuff. And he with not, and he wasn't doing this to be funny. He just read it this way, not realizing what he was saying. He's like, "And make sure to follow us on MyFace and Facebook." <laughs> and that's, that's perfect. So make sure you share behind the Braves on MyFace and Facebook and everywhere else. And uh, so, anyways, for Greg McMichael, I'm Ricky Mast, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Braves. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.